May the words of my mouth and meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. When our son Zachary was four or five years old, um, he begged us to sign him up to play T-ball. And so we did. We signed him up for T-ball and he had... um, you know, he's number two son, so he'd been watching his older brother play for a couple of years, and um, and he was so excited, so thrilled. And um, and, and as the season opener loomed, you know, he could you just see the, the burgeoning superstar inside of him ready to come out. And, and he would ask us in the week before, is my game today? No, Zach, it's not today, it's Saturday. Next day, is my game today? No, today's Tuesday. Your game's on Saturday. And you know how you do. You pull the calendar off of the, off the refrigerator and you'd, you know, point to where we are. This is Tuesday. And then, you know, count the days over and there it is on Saturday. Zach's baseball game. Right there it is. You know, here's Saturday. Mommy's written your game right there. And then by Thursday, is my game today? No, today is Thursday. Your game is on Saturday. And, and somehow, by the sheer mercy of God, we made it through that week. And, um, and, and we got to the, is my game today? Yes, that your game is today, you know. And, uh, and you know how you do. You, you get them dressed up in their, their old baseball uniforms in the morning and take them out in the front lawn and snap pictures of them together and, and head off to uh, Easy Walker Park was the name of the place where we went for, for Zachary's T-ball game. It was in Kentucky. And, um, and, and there he was. He was all ready to go. Uh, youth T-ball in this league had about 15 kids on each team. Everyone bats every inning. There is no limit to the number of outs that you can get in an inning. Um, it doesn't stop the children from trying to get at least one. Uh, they work hard at it. Um, and so we watched, and, and we were in the home half of the inning, so we watched you know, 15, 12, whatever kids bat on the other side. And I think Zach was like the 10th or 11th batter coming up. Finally, his moment of glory has arrived, right? I mean, he's, he's all geared up. He's got his uniform on. He's got the helmet for batting. I don't know why they need a helmet. Anyway, he has his helmet on. He's got, he's got you know, batting gloves probably and a bat and cleats and just... And, and he's smiling. He's smiling so large that it's like like every tooth, you know, you see this. His, his, he's being called up to the majors. Um, this is his moment. So adorable, was he? That, that actually, he got his picture taken by the, by the reporter. It was on the front page of the paper that week. We got a paper every week. Anyway, so here he was, um, all ready to go, got up to bat, and... Um, and just like with the, with the determination of a brain surgeon, you know, he pulls that bat back. He's studying the ball, hitting the, nails it right off of the tee. I mean, the ball goes flying. You know, 20 parents and twice as many siblings and, and uh, teammates go, Zach, run, run. And he does. He takes off in a full sprint, fast as you could imagine, directly down the third base line, heading straight third base. His coach catches him on the way by and says, no, first base, he points across the diamond. And so Zachary runs directly from third base, past the pitcher's mound, to first base. And he lands and he puts his hands up in the air, safe. I think he might have been safe, you know, like the ball still hadn't made it back around. Uh, he, was, he was at his glory, you know. Um, maybe one of the funniest things I think I've ever seen in a t-ball game, and there are a lot of funny things to see there. <laughs> 
You know, just because you think you know the rules, <laughs> you know, I mean, he had seen this stuff. He had, he had watched his brother. He, he had watched, a, you know, two dozen children in front of him. And yet somehow it just still escaped him which direction he should go. There's a, a famous story about the Green Bay Packers who were getting clobbered in a game one time and, and, um, and at halftime, Vince Lombardi goes back there and cl- gathers them all into a, a huddle in the, in the locker room. He reaches down and picks up a ball. And he says, gentlemen, this is a football. As if everything they had learned about the game had to go back to the very basic fundamentals. This is a football. Uh, Jesus has been invited to a party. Um, Luke says it is at the home of one of the leading Pharisees. Um, I don't know if you remember who the Pharisees are. They were the deeply religious men. They were the uber-Orthodox, um, the most rigidly traditionalists, the conservatives conservative. And I don't mean that in the American political sense, but I mean in the, in the people who hold on to the traditions of the elders. They were, they were, they were just pedantic about ancient traditions and rituals. They loved to point out flaws in other people when they failed to keep these, uh, these principles and these, these, uh, rules. They, um, they literally would count their footsteps on the Sabbath. They would keep a mental track of every step they took because there was a prescribed number of steps you could take before travel became labor. And if you labored on the Sabbath, you violated the Sabbath. So if it came to the point where they had reached the, 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 the maximum number of steps, even if they happened to be in the middle of the road, they would sit down and wait until the end of the day. Carts and donkeys and everything would have to go around them, I guess. They kept a strict account of everything they ate because there were strict dietary laws for Jews. They knew exactly the clothing that a person should wear. They knew every one of the 613 commands in the Torah and memorized them as children. And they invite Jesus to dinner. These are the people. One of the leading Pharisees. So if you can think of the people who, who keep these sort of uh, regimented lifestyle, imagine one of the leading people of this, this group, and he invites Jesus to dinner. And Luke says, let me read this to you again, on one occasion when Jesus was going to the house of a leader of the Pharisees to eat a meal on the Sabbath, they were watching him closely. They were keeping their eyes on him. You know, these people were really good at picking out the flaws in other people. And here they're watching him closely. They want to see what he's up to. Maybe their motives weren't so pure. Maybe they didn't invite him there just for his company. Perhaps they wanted to discredit him or maybe embarrass him. They have their eyes on him. But Luke turns it on its head as well. And he says uh, when they know, excuse me, that Jesus noticed how the guests chose. Jesus is watching them as well. And he noticed how they chose the places of honor at the table. And Luke says he tells them this parable. Now remember, I mean, these, these men, are, they're, they're scrupulous about every point of religious law. And Jesus notices that they're jockeying for position to get the best seats at the table, the most honorable, the most visible, uh, the ones where you, oh, wow, look where you're sitting. You're so close to the head of the table. People who are preoccupied about religious law have another preoccupation. Pride. Vanity. They're driven by a single concern about what other people think about them. The writer of Proverbs lists a number of sins. 
Uh, seven of them, actually. He says that the Lord despises. Let me read this Proverbs chapter 6. There are six things that the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to him. This is a, a, a Hebraic uh, poet, poetic way of saying there are seven things that God really despises. Uh, haughty eyes. Number one, proud eyes. Eyes that look to pridefulness. A lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. The first sin in this list of seven, pride. Now maybe the writer has not necessarily given us a, a category of degrees, but it's no accident that he lists pride as being the first one. Let me give you some other passages from, from Proverbs. Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs eleven twelve: when pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble, there is wisdom. Proverbs eight thirteen: the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil are perverted speech that I hate. The New Testament, St. James says that God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Here's the point. The Pharisees are concerned about holiness and righteousness, right? They're concerned about what they wear and what they eat and where they go and how many steps they take on the Sabbath day. But the very most significant part of righteousness, resisting pride, embracing humility, they seem to have missed that altogether. And it's in this instance that Jesus tells two parables. And the first one is um, about a banquet. And he says, when you're invited to a banquet, it sort of sounds like he's given instruction, doesn't he? But Luke is really careful to say this is a parable. When you're invited to a banquet, you know, you don't choose the seats of honor that come with a possibility of demotion, but choose the lowly seats that come with a possibility of promotion. It's a parable. This isn't etiquette for how to go to a dinner party, although it doesn't hurt you if you use it there. This is about life, isn't it? This is about the whole of living, the way that we live our lives. Don't try to make yourself great. Rather, embrace obscurity. Don't try to put yourself in a high position. Take a lowly one. Don't seek significance. Be willing to work behind the scenes. This is the the message. It doesn't, of course, mean that you can't have fun. You can't be gregarious. It doesn't mean that at all. Of course you can. Of course that's okay. It's about making yourself great or trying to be great. Shakespeare says that um, all the world's a stage and the men and women are merely players. I think Jesus might turn this and say, all of life is a banquet. And all the men and women are just simply choosing their seats. All the world is a banquet and men and women are simply choosing their seats. And then he gives a second parable. The second parable is about guest list. When you have a, have a party, don't invite um, all the, uh, the wealthy people and the honorable people and just your friends and family. Go out instead, invite the poor, the lame, the crippled, the sick, those who cannot repay you. Again, it's a parable. Yes, you can have your friends over for dinner. And I hope I'm one of your friends. Invite me. I'll come. Um, you can invite people over. You can invite the people you like and spend time with. That's not the point. In, in Jesus' world, the ancient world, first century, there was this, um, there was this uh, pattern of reciprocity. You wanted to move up a social ladder, you invite an honorable, you know, leading, wealthy person to your home that they might invite you back. 
And when they invite you back and you're seen at their home, this gives you the sort of networking skill to kind of move yourself up the social ladder. Jesus says, don't use friendships to move yourself up a social ladder. Why don't you instead just go out and help people who are needy? And guess what? Nobody else might see you, but the Lord will see you. And he who sees in secret, he says in the Sermon on the Mount, right, rewards you openly. Do good to people who cannot repay you. And God will be your debtor. It'll be up to him to pay you back. When you give a luncheon, do not invite your friends or brothers. This isn't about dinner etiquette. That's too small a thing. It's much bigger. It's about life, about the way that we live. It's about making time for people who cannot repay us. Making sure that our motives aren't about selfishness and pride and vanity. 2,000 years. 2,000 years since Jesus um, taught these stories. And you know what? I, I don't think the world has changed really all that much. You know, I'm a big Bob Dylan fan. He says the times they are changing. Well, the more things change, the more they stay the same. <laughs> the issue, isn't it? We still are the same sort of people. We still wrestle with the same sorts of things. And particularly sin and its chief attribute, pride. We think that we wrestle against things like, um, like avarice and, uh, and lust and gluttony and sloth. And we wink. We nudge at pride. Sometimes we even make pride into a virtue. It's it's not really that bad. No, it really is that bad. It is the most destructive force in the world, pride is. It teaches us that we can be gods ourselves. This is is in Genesis 3, the very essence of the very first original sin, isn't it? That men and women thought they didn't need God, that they could choose their own way. That we can be gods to ourselves. We can meet our own needs. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says about pride. He said, pride has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and in every family since the world began. Pride has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Pride is so subtle. It is so, so subtle. And it wrecks havoc in everything that it does. And so we think the sins that we struggle with are these things that I mentioned, but they're not. The underlying essence is always pride. And there's only one way to conquer it. To embrace this life that Jesus offers. Again, it's not about dinner parties. Don't think it's about dinner parties. Think about it as the way that we live, seeking lowliness, seeking to be okay with what we have, to be of humble estate. And you know what? This sounds crazy. You don't hear this, this talk doesn't go on in a motivational speech. You know what I mean? This, is, this isn't what you get at the, uh, at the motivational speaker seminars. This is actually the quite opposite of us, isn't it? It's not even what you get in the MBA programs. It's about taking delight in God and allowing him to take delight in us. You know, I think about my little son, you know, running down that third baseline. I mean, he's 22 now. I, I still, it, it just makes me giddy with laughter when I think about it. It was an awesome moment. And think about how that's a metaphor for life, though, isn't it? That a lot of people just, with, with sheer abandon, run down the wrong baseline. In fact, I would go so far as to say the vast majority of our world is running the wrong way. 
Just because we think we know the rules doesn't mean we actually know them. The question, the question that we all have to answer for ourselves is who are we going to follow? Which way are we going to run? Whose ethos for life are we going to embrace? The way of the world or the way of Jesus? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.